If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 11. We're still uh, working through the Lord's Prayer. We're to verse 4 this morning. This prayer could uh, better be titled maybe the Disciples' Prayer because this is the prayer that uh, Christ gives the disciples when they ask Him to teach them how to pray. Luke chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He had finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we forgive, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would Help us grasp the reason why Christ taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins. Father, I pray that we would be humbled this morning, that joy would fill our hearts as we consider your mercy, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if there's a better thing to uh, show me the state of my soul, the state of my relationship with God than when I pray when I especially need to pray in public, whether it's at the supper table, whether it's at church on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning or with my wife before I go to bed. I might not be thinking about how my relationship with God is until I pray. And I confess that many times as I begin to pray, I feel guilty as I sense a distance from myself and God. Sometimes, by God's grace, when I pray, it's just natural. It feels so right. My heart's in tune to God. My relationship with God is close and sweet. And when it comes time to pray, it feels good. But often, the thermometer of my soul is shown to me when I need to pray. The interesting thing is, I think that's true probably for you too, and the thermostat to change 
the thermometer of our soul actually, I think, is prayer. God tunes our hearts to Him when we approach Him, especially when we approach Him the way God has called us to approach Him. This is the prayer that God gave the disciples to pray. He's teaching them how to pray rightly. And in this prayer, Jesus is teaching more than just the type of content that should be in our prayers, but more fundamentally, what the attitude of our hearts ought to be as we approach the throne of God in prayer. It's not merely God giving us an outline to say, make sure you pray about these things, but rather, when you approach God, have the attitude like this. Father, hallowed be Your name. That Your name be glorified. When you pray, have that attitude in your prayers. That Your kingdom come. Father, send Christ. He's my hope. When you pray, pray that with the attitude that all your hope is in God. And the kingdom ultimately comes when Christ shows up. You and I don't bring the kingdom of God in. Christ does. The kingdom of God is at hand when Christ showed up on earth. And it'll be fulfilled when He returns. So when you pray, have this God-centered, God-glorifying attitude. Realize that everything you get comes from Him. Give us each day our daily bread. Everything. Your breath, your strength to work, your food, all your physical needs come from His hand. Come to prayer humbly, recognizing that you don't even have your next breath unless God gives it to you. It's the attitude of the prayer. And now we get to verse 4 and forgive us our sins. Father, not we need physical bread. We need physical help. We need you to provide for us physically, but spiritually. We cannot survive unless you forgive us. What does it mean to pray? Such simple words that Sometimes we take for granted if someone made us define these terms, we might struggle. Forgive us our sins. Could you define forgiveness? Could you define sins? This morning, I want us to consider the devastating effects of sin. To begin with, if we're going to know what we're asking for forgiveness for, what are sins? Why are they, why are they devastating to us? Uh, 
John MacArthur helpfully was summarizing what the Bible has to say about sin. There's five Greek words. I'm going to spare you what, what they are, but I'll tell you what they all mean. They're all referring to sin. The first one means missing the mark. If we're going to define what sin is, it means we miss God's standard. We miss the mark. We're created to glorify Him, and we don't. Another term means to cross the line, to overstep boundaries. There's forbidden territory that our thoughts and our words and our deeds should not cross, and we do. There's another word that means lawlessness. Sin is proud. It says, I don't care about you, God. I'm going to do it my own way. There's a rebelliousness, a lawlessness. I'll make up my own laws. I'll pick and choose which ones of yours I like, and I'll ignore these others. There's a lawlessness to sin. There's another word that means to transgress, which literally means to slip or to fall or to lose self-control of your ability to stand up. Here the idea is that within sin, we can't save ourselves. We can't stand up on our own two feet. We're enslaved to it. We fall. Sin causes us to have no self-control. We may have the deception that we think we have control, but because of sin, we're actually enslaved to our passions. And the fifth word means debt. Our sin is a debt, an obligation that we owe to God that we can't pay back. Because the debt is informed by the one with whom we sinned against. And the one with whom we sinned against is an eternally glorious, righteous God. To offend an eternal God demands an eternal payment. Eternity in hell is the debt or an eternal God-man that can take the place, take our place, represent us before God. Sin is devastating. We've just merely defined it. What's the result of sin? The worst result is that sin always separates. Listen to me. Sin always separates. You and I are deceived because sin often promises a better uniting. 
Think of a young couple that's dating. And God has drawn the boundaries physically. This is what's right. Here's what glorifies me. But sin says, I love you. You love me. Let's make our relationship closer by uniting ourselves physically before marriage. That'll separate. That drives a wedge in between Christians. Sin separates. The worst separation of sin is it separates people from their creator. People from God. You're created to be in relationship with God. Adam and Eve got to walk with God in perfect fellowship every day. That's why we exist to be in union with Him and reflect Him and learn from Him and glorify Him. And yet, if we're to go back to the first sin, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 3, starting in verse... We're going to look at verse 22. They've already eaten of the tree in the center of the garden that God told them not to eat from. And at the end of this chapter, here's the result. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, the Trinity, like one of the Trinity in knowing good and evil. So when they ate of the tree, they became like the Trinity in a certain way, but not a good way. So the Trinity knows all about evil because God's omniscient. But man learned about evil by becoming evil. By sinning. And now here's the result. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the, the tree of life and eat and live forever separated from God because up to this point man is hiding from God no longer walking in the garden with him they're hiding from him relationship broken so they don't go eat of the tree of life and continually live in separation from God here's what God says therefore God has sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin separates man from living perfectly in his presence with this unhindered relationship. These cherubim Guard the presence of God. That's why above the ark, behind the holies of holies, you have the two cherubim representing the presence of God. And sin broke that relationship between man and God. They died spiritually. They died spiritually. Isaiah 59.1 says this. 
or verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Sin separates us from God. The verse that precedes that though says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear. Yes, your sin separates, but this does not mean God cannot reach out, that God cannot save. The writer of uh, Habakkuk, verse uh, 13 in chapter 1 says this, you who are are of purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look on wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors or remain silent when the wicked swallows up man or uh, the man more righteous than he? So he knew that because God's eyes are pure, when a sinner's there, he cannot welcome into fellowship the sinner without something being done on behalf of the sinner. In fact, Psalm 5.5 says this, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You know, some of our sayings, our, our, our cliche sayings, uh, God loves the sinner, hates the sin, sometimes are challenged by Scripture. Psalm 5, five says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. So, apart from the mercy of God, man cannot stand before God. Psalm 11.4 says something similar. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Sin separates us from God. That's what you're created for. Psalm 16.11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Every human being wants joy. Every human being wants pleasures. And those come in the presence of God, but because of sin, there's a separation between man and God. Sin also separates the body from the soul in death. That's what death is. It's a separation of soul and body. In Genesis 2.16, here's what the Lord told Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you wonder if that actually happened, read Genesis 5. It's a genealogy of from Adam on. Here's what you read in Genesis 5.5. 5. Thus 
All the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Death, sickness is because of sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve. Sin also separates people from other people. We're created to be in fellowship with each other. Yet in Genesis 3 verse 11, right after chapter 2, where God gives Adam Eve and he says, at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, finally look at this gift that you've given me as Adam's treasuring his wife. The very next chapter in verse 11, Adam says, the Lord says, why are you hiding? And he says it's because he's naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The first marriage relationship that broke. Adam basically said, kill my wife. Right after chapter 2, God said, if you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. Adam, why are you hiding? My wife gave me the fruit. Kill her. Sin separates relationships. Every relational tension in this world is because of sin. The devastating effects of sin on this world are unbelievable. And sin carries with it guilt. And guilt kills a person. Even physically. Secular therapists know this. They have to come up with their own doctrine to try to get rid of guilt. Whether it's blame it on your mom and dad or blame it on your circumstances or find some person to blame rather than yourself because my client can't get better unless they can get rid of this guilt. Forgiveness is our only hope. For man cannot save himself or work his own way out of the sin problem. Proverbs 20, verse 9. You don't need to look these up. I'll just give them to you rapid fire. Who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from sin. Nobody. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.19, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says there will never be a person that's found not guilty and gets his debt paid because he does works. Man can't work him way, his way out of the sin problem. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? We've already seen this this morning. The leopard is spots. Then also you can do, or then also 
you can do good, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Sin is a cruel master. Paul speaks of it as a master. Sin is not something you have control of. It's something that has control of you. It makes you obey its passions. And if you're enslaved to it, you can't get yourself unenslaved to it. You can't fix the problem because you're not the master. Sin is. It causes you to obey its passions, its lust, its rebellious pride. Self-control is not an option for a slave. The master controls the slave, right? Sin is a problem. We don't take enough time to think about everything good that we could, any hope we could ever have in this world is devastated by sin. And unless it can be taken care of, we have no hope. Let's consider the redemptive effects of forgiveness. We just considered the devastating effects of sin. What does forgiveness mean for us? Now, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it speaks of it in two senses. You'll be really confused in the New Testament if you don't understand when the Bible is talking about judicial forgiveness and relational forgiveness. Until this week, this was kind of fuzzy for me. I was greatly helped studying this passage in understanding forgiveness. We think forgiveness is a simple concept. It's not. We have to read the Bible carefully to understand what the Bible means when it's talking about forgiveness. This prayer is for His disciples. This is not a prayer given to man, but to believers, to disciples. A non-believer cannot pray, Father, hallowed be Your name. No, Jesus gives this to believers. So why does He tell believers who are already saved to pray that their sins may be forgiven? Well, Jesus is not talking about judicial forgiveness in this text. Now there's implications he couldn't even tell them to pray this without it, but that's not his focus. What is judicial forgiveness? It's in this word, big words a lot of times you don't need to know. There's some you need to know. Justification is one of them. You can hear the judicial language in justification. The legal declaration that God makes that you no longer have a debt, that the debt's been 
forgiven and that you're righteous. You're not guilty. Speaking of our justification is God looking at the believer having Christ taken their sin away and giving them perfect righteousness, God declares not guilty right before God. Let me show you, show you a few of these. Philippians 3.8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Wow, he must be amazing if he'd count everything lost. And then he says this, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may, be, may gain Christ and be found in him. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be found in Christ? Here's what he says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What it means to be found in Christ is when you believe in Him and trust in Him, Jesus' perfect sinless life, the only man that never sinned, when you're found in Him, that means in your account in heaven, there is perfect righteousness there. All the sin has been taken away. You're found in Him. The only way you'll get out of sin is pay the eternal debt in hell forever or to be found in the eternal God-man who has the exact same worth of the one in whom you sinned against. And when He takes your place and you're found in Him, which Paul says is of more value than everything. I count everything lost in comparison of knowing Him to be able to be found in Christ. Here's how he says it in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He just has talked about how we're a new creation in Christ. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. You see the reconciling of a broken relationship? The wor uh, who is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then in verse 21 he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, on the cross, God takes our sin, puts it on him, so that in him, being found in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. Here's how Peter says it. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. Judicial forgiveness our justification is the transfer from our sin to Jesus. God pours His wrath out on Jesus. God punishes our sins on Jesus. He doesn't merely shuffle them under the rug. And He gifts, He counts 
us righteous as though we lived the life Christ lived. There's a transfer. There's a substitution. Now, when you trust Christ savingly for the first time, that happens and you never will lose your salvation. You don't need to be justified over and over and over again. Jesus is not talking about judicial forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer. He's talking about relational forgiveness. You see, our account book, the, the account books in heaven are taken care of in Christ. But guess what? We still struggle with sin, don't we? Well, does that have any effect on us? Should we not care if we sin? No, because sin always what? Separates. You see, one of the greatest gifts of salvation is not merely that you're going to be found not guilty, but that now you get to have a relationship with God. And when you and I sin, it hurts the relationship. Now, a father who has a rebellious son, if they get in a fight and the son tells the father to take a hike and that he hates him and says, I'm out of here, that child does not cease to be the father's son. But the sin of the son hurts the relationship, does it not? That relationship is not good when sin is present. In Matthew 6, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer in verse 12, here's what he says. He says to pray, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not teaching that if you want to get saved, you have to go forgive all of the people, and then God says, that's good enough, now you earn salvation. He's talking about relational salvation, our, our relational uh, um, oneness. And he's saying, if you come to me and try to have a relationship with me when you're holding unforgiveness with others, you cannot have that. You have to confess your sin. You have to go speak to your brother. If you're going to come to me with the right heart and our relationship's going to be good, we cannot have difficult relationships that we don't care about and say, I'm going to have a great relationship with God. You're fooling yourself if you think you can come to God in that way. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 51. This might be one of the best examples of relational forgiveness. This is the famous psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, killed her husband Uriah. 
horrible sin. David went over a year before he confessed and repented and called his sin what it was. Confession, by the way, is agreeing with God about your sin. Call it what God calls it. So here's what he says. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's admitting what it is. He's calling it what God calls it. And then he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then he agrees with how sinful he is. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He was born a sinner and sinned and my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. Well, the wisdom David is taught is he's being convicted of his sinfulness. And then he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Here's the right way to pray. Lord, change my heart. Oh God, Renew a right spirit within me. And then look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. The worst thing David could have is separation from God. And then here's what he says. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. This is relational forgiveness because he says restore me to the salvation I already have. Restore me to the joy of our relationship. I'm confessing my sin. I'm agreeing what it is. Let us have communion together again. And then he says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He'll go to transgressors and say, admit who you are. Admit who you are. Come to the God who is merciful and gracious. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. You see, he's not getting saved here. He's being restored to the God of his salvation. Verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When you pray, come to God admitting who you are and what you're doing and desire that God help you change. You come with a broken, contrite heart, He'll hear your prayer. There's a way we can come to God where we're hiding our sin. Turn to Psalm 32. 
Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed could be translated happy. Blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You see that? He's not denying that we have sin. Blessed is the man whom God doesn't count that sin against him, whose sin is covered. And then he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the unblessed person is the person in whose spirit is deceit, who's hiding their sin. You see, the word covered keeps coming up. Either God will cover your sin, God will blot it out and it'll be gone, or it'll remain and you'll hide it. You'll cover it. You'll protect it. You see, these are the two options in this psalm. For when I kept silent, when he, when he was hiding his sin, what does he say? My bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. That's guilt killing the person. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Guess what? The relationship, because of unconfessed sin, because of not agreeing with God about your sin, experiences, the believer experiences the heavy hand of God on them. And then he says, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want to know how you're doing in your relationship with God, pray how Jesus taught us to pray. Are you hiding sin? Are you protecting it? Are you coming to God and agreeing with Him? Just honestly, I'll be honest with you. If I'm honest, I can go days without confessing specific sins. You want to know what I'm, the lie I'm believing there? That justification is the only good thing. You know, my sins are forgiven. At the end of the day, maybe I say, Lord, forgive all my sins. But guess what? If I'm not coming to Him daily, confessing my sins before Him, my relationship, my personal love relationship with Christ is broken. You know what I'm talking about. You felt it. The way you have a relationship restored, whether it's between human beings or between human beings and God, there has to be forgiveness. There has to be confession. There has to be honesty. And then for a relationship truly to be restored, there has to be forgiveness. This is illustrated in one other place. I'll just tell you about it because we're about out of time. 
Remember when Jesus was washing Peter's feet? What did Peter say? Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Am I doing? Jesus answered to him, what I am doing you do not understand, but after you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, if I do not wash you, you have no, no share with me. Jesus said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Peter, you're already saved. You don't need a bath. You're trusting in me. The illustration there is that, no, you don't need to be justified again. But we do need every day to take our sin seriously and value the sweetness of our relationship with God. Now, we could talk about so many other things. The second half of this is as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we're close to Christ relationally, seeing our own sin, knowing who we are, guess what flows out of that? We're forgiving our brothers and sisters in Christ That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. We can't separate these two things. If we're going to be coming to God for forgiveness, we're going to be forgiving those around us. My prayer is that you pray honestly, seeking an authentic relationship with God and others. That's what this prayer is all about. Here's how you pray. If you pray like this, your relationship with God will be authentic. It'll be rightly ordered. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sins as I forgive others. What hope we have. The good news is, is there's forgiveness. We can be made right before God for all eternity. That can be set here today, if you're not a believer, by realizing that your only hope of having your sins forgiven is to cling to the only sacrifice that God gave there's, one, there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. There isn't plan B. And if you trust Him today, if you believe He went to that cross, took your sins, God punished Him for it, He will gift you His righteousness into your account and you can no longer fear eternal separation from God. And the good news is, is your relationship with God can begin. You can begin to confess your sin to God and He'll speak to you through His Word and through other brothers and sisters in Christ speaking His Word to each other. 
and you can grow and you can begin the relationship you were always meant to have, but because of being born into sin was always broken. You see, the whole world chases after a thousand different things. There's a reason why Hollywood is one of the saddest places on earth. They got the looks, they got all the money, but God never created them to be satisfied in those things. But God created man to be satisfied in the presence of God, being made right in that relationship, secure knowing that forgiveness is locked up for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful news we have. Not only that our sins can be forgiven, but that we can be in right relationship with you by confessing our sins, coming to you for forgiveness. Father, I pray that that love that you give us through your grace, through your forgiving grace, would overflow to those around us. That we would likewise forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ and seek an honest relationship that doesn't shuffle things under the rug, but speaks honestly about what the issues are and then graciously deals with each other. I pray that that's how our relationships would look. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.